Welcome to today's Voices of Conservation Science. I'm Andrea Litt. On this podcast, we talk to people who are doing science that's then used to conserve natural resources. And today I'm not in our regular studio. Um, we're trying to stay safe due to the coronavirus pandemic. And so we're in, in what we're calling Studio Zoom. And I'm here, here in the virtual space with uh, Coulter Brown, who's a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. Welcome, Coulter. Welcome to the inter interweb space. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Good Thanks to for joining not us. Be in person. <laughs> yes, yes. We can see each other and hear each other, and we will have a conversation. And uh, exciting to think about all the good work that um, everybody's doing at these times of, of uncertainty. Um, to get us started, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and your background and what what has led up to this point for you? Okay. Um, I guess my background is I grew up in Wyoming uh, with game warden for a dad. So I've always been involved, spent a lot of time outdoors hunting and fishing and just uh, also going out and doing sage grouse counts on the leks and antelope classification. So always was interested in wildlife and fish and really liked fishing. So decided I wanted to do that for a career at a young age. And since then, um, just went to school to be a fisheries biologist in Wyoming and uh, or to get a degree in fish and wildlife management in Wyoming and worked for a couple of years for the Wyoming Game and Fish Department as a fisheries technician, doing all the fun stuff, going out sampling high mountain lakes and reservoirs. And then I got a project working with mountain whitefish with Chris Guy and made the big move up to Montana. So... <laughs> So you have had um, a very, what I, what, to me, what seems like a really interesting path because you got exposed to the field and the potential to have a career in fish and wildlife very early on. If you were counting sage grouse on Lex, as a, I assume as a kid, going out with your dad and stuff, you, you had sort of front row seats to the profession, which maybe is not the case for everybody. It certainly wasn't for me. <laughs> and so was it kind of a foregone conclusion for you that that's what you were going to do or... I think for some people, when when they when they are exposed to their parents' careers, they think they're going to go in a completely opposite direction. So, tell us a little bit more about that. Um, for me, it wasn't it going into fisheries. Really, I I was probably middle school. I was pretty well decided that that's what I wanted to do. Um, so yeah, it was pretty early on, just like getting to see what he goes out and does for work every day. Um, wound up not going the game warden route. Just yeah. So I didn't, I slightly veered, but it was pretty sure. slight veer off of um, what he had done. Just, yeah, knowing what that work can be and yeah, caring about it. Just, it's pretty early on. I decided that was the route I wanted to go. <laughs> Did he expose you to other people he worked with in, in other, in other jobs in the profession? Um, yep, he did. Uh, I was probably it might have even been grade school but yeah probably 13 or 14 maybe so it might have been middle school but got to go out on a boat uh pulling fish out of gill nets um so yeah just even got into the fisheries end of it a little bit early on and turkey trapping and banding geese and so yeah helping out the biologists both fish and wildlife as well too so that's Just really great. Really fortunate. <laughs> what a what a cool experience. What a cool way to grow up. 
Um, so yeah, take take your son to work day looked looked pretty pretty cool. Such a difference from other other kids we were growing up with. Um, so you probably it sounds like you didn't really consider any other path besides this uh, natural resources, fish and wildlife conservation kind of thing, which is nice because because that meant you could sort of surge forward. Um, and it sounds like you also had exposure to other other careers, which is again usually a, a at least that was really hard for me. I didn't realize that, that there were so many different kinds of careers in the profession. And so moving to the fishery side of things, as opposed to the, the terrestrial or the wildlife side of things, were there other things besides going out with your, your dad's colleagues that piqued your interest in, in actually a career in fisheries itself? Um, fisheries, really, that was the route I wanted to go. Uh, main reason is, I uh, just love fishing, love hunting too, but really fishing and just fisheries has always been, I don't know, just my main focus. Um, always cared about that. And then getting to work in fisheries, just the hands-on work that fish biologists get to do with the resource um, compared to just counting, you get to, you know, handle the fish and um, yeah, I just love that aspect of it. So just, yeah, a love for fisheries over wildlife, I guess fish went out so <laughs> but at some point you gotta pick right so it's you maybe love both of them but at some point you gotta you gotta narrow in <laughs> you mentioned uh, in your intro a few other positions that you had sorry if you hear the dog barking this is what we're dealing with in this current time um you mentioned a few other jobs that you had leading up to going to graduate school can you tell us a little bit more about the kinds of things you were doing and and where you were doing them Okay, really, the first job in the, I guess, prior to going into fish and wildlife, I worked uh, BLM fire crew for a couple of years, which that was just good fun, but not a career path I wanted to go. It's so, a little bit hard to sustain and in getting into old age, right? <laughs> exactly. Like I wanted to have good knees in the future. So, <laughs> <laughs> but that was fun. But um, starting into fisheries, I worked at a fish hatchery for three months, and um, that was fun. Just a good way to get into the field. I'd recommend to anyone, really. Just, um, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Just normal hatchery work, cleaning and fixing fence and everything else. Um, that's Entr how I got entry level things we all have to have to do to get experience and get exposure and meet people, right? Exactly. Like, yeah, one of those jobs that a lot of people want to start as a fisheries technician, I think, but getting a hatchery job like that, I, I really enjoyed it. And yeah, it's a great way to get to know people because, I mean, it directly led into the next job, getting that first position at a hatchery. So um, pretty good place to start. Um, then working as a fisheries technician for Wyoming Game and Fish, uh, really enjoyed that job. As far as any just base job goes, I think it's pretty hard to beat. Lots of time in the field, you're out sampling and um, yeah, just whether it be streams and rivers or lakes, uh, just doing population work or looking at the habitat, doing some evaluation of the habitat and even going out with dip nets, looking for salamanders to kind of get to do everything with a job like that, which um, I really enjoyed. Yeah, that sounds that sounds great. It sounds like not only did you have opportunities to meet people, but this diversity of skills and different different species you're working with, which is really important to not only to figure out what you want to do if you're not quite as sure as you, but <laughs> then to apply for for future positions. 
Um, you, you clearly talked about how influ influential your dad was in, uh, in helping you get to this place and helping you figure out, um, pique your interest in, in conservation and nature. Were there other people or other experiences that were really important moving you here? The things that really got me to this point, I'm trying to think, just all the people you end up working with along the way really help. Um, whether it be the first hatchery job I had, I had someone that really helped me along there, just learning about the fish and really working at a place like that. You don't think about how, how long the effect of stress is on fish. Oh yeah. But, um, so that kind of work, just really gaining a respect for, you know, taking care of them, whether they may be fine now, but in three days you'll see, you know, fish not act as well in a hatchery after you mess with them. So you clearly had a, had a nice path defined um, early on, knowing where you wanted to go, which is usually one of the big hurdles of just sort of figuring out what you wanted to do to get here. Um, did you have hurdles along the way that, that stood in your way of getting to this place? Um, I would say a lack of patience was one of my bigger <laughs> hurdles as far as... On your part. <laughs> is that what you mean? Yep, exactly. <laughs> On my part. <laughs> um, just getting out of undergrad, I knew I wanted to be a fisheries biologist and, you know, getting a master's is the next logical step. But um, it was one of those things where it's like, okay, you get out of undergrad and then you go to grad school. It's, but <laughs> you quickly find out that it's not as easy as that. So um, putting in your time as a fisheries technician to learn some of those technical skills in the field so you're qualified to be a graduate student. Um, I guess I was really ready. It's like, okay, grad school's coming right up. And just the two years or two and a half years later when I got into grad school, that period, it was hard to keep on track, kind of. It was, you know, you saw other opportunities. But, um, yeah, just that time period where you're gaining – it's a lot of fun, the jobs, but, yeah, just the – waiting especially if you play with fire for a couple of years rather than right. working on your fish tank <laughs> skills so that yeah it is a, you're in an interesting spot knowing exactly what you wanted to do and knowing what the next step was supposed to be but then but needing to take those those extra steps of gaining experience and building your network and um in order to get to that next place i'm sure was that was definitely frustrating so what what success strategies did you use to help you get through that time period what do you think helped you get to the grad school place after that time? Um, helped me get to the grad school. It sounds like I, it was a lot of getting more, just getting more experience and hands-on yeah, experience. Yeah, I'd say what really helped me get to this is, yeah, just getting those technician jobs where you, you know, you get the boat handling skills, you know, understanding the equipment, uh, just getting better at, fixing it all of those things that you gain work experience wise and also um, just networking getting to know you know more biologists and with that talking to them and being willing to ask them for help on like could you look at my resume and you know make sure that everything is ready to apply to these grad schools and uh, knowing what they'll likely want that sort of thing um, yeah just being willing to ask people that you work with for help that know how, you know, your route forward should go and just gaining skills in, on the job, I think. I think that's a good point is that there, 
um, you have to you have to be willing and know that you can ask for for help because there are lots of people out there that are willing to to give you their their expertise or give you some advice because they've been in the same spot that you have been and and it's totally uh, appropriate to be asking for help in those cases because there's no no good manual for for how this all works right yep you're listening to today's Voices of Conservation Science, and today I'm talking with Coulter Brown, who's a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. So I wanna move from your past to your present and have you introduce us to the species that you're working on today. Okay. Uh, mountain whitefish are, they're a native salmonid, or native salmonid species, so they're related to trout and grayling. Um, and they live from northern Canada all the way down to Colorado and Utah in the Rocky Mountains. And they're a species that's a sport fish and most considered a sport fish in most of their range. But they're not as popular as uh, the other trout species in the areas. So um, there's something that, yeah, people do catch. But most of the time, it's more like, ah, it's a whitefish. <laughs> if you're familiar with them, <laughs> but I would argue they deserve more respect because yeah, they're the native species in the area. And a lot of these rivers, they're the only native salmonid left. So places like, you know, the uh, Madison river, when you catch one, you should really be happy for it. Is my, <laughs> my little like plug that. on this. <laughs> I like but, it. Um, yeah, they're, they have a big range, but they only live in the larger rivers within the range and not when they get too warm. So within the whole drainage, they only live within a subset of the water. And in some of the rivers in the southern part of their range, uh, populations are starting to decline. So uh, the work I'm doing has to do with that, just trying to figure out what's going on with some of these declining populations in the southern part of the Mount Whitefish range, because historically they're in very high abundance throughout the range and they're still doing well in some rivers, but we're seeing declines. So trying to get ahead of what's happening to these mountain whitefish populations. So do we know anything about what, what, is, what is causing these declines at all? Um, we do know some. Some of the leading things that could be causing these declines are things like habitat fragmentation by dams, potentially. Um, just increasing water temperatures is definitely there very sensitive to high water temperature. Yeah, there's uh, lots of things that could increase temperature, right? Like the damming is just one one way the temperature might increase and probably lots yeah. of other changes could occur as well. Exactly, and that can actually provide them some thermal refuge depending on the area. So um, it's complicated that way. Just, yeah, water use can change the, can increase water temperature, irrigation practices. So a lot going into that. And also things like disease, if People are from the Rocky Mountain West. They might have heard of the mountain whitefish kill in the Yellowstone River in 2016, where it was an estimated 20,000 mountain whitefish died in that river that had a very stable population. And um, that was just a disease outbreak. So uh, there's a lot of suspects, but the exact reasons for some of the declines, they don't really know. So that's where you you said you come in of looking at at least some some portion of the the range of this species, which obviously is very large. What are the specific questions that you're you're asking with your with your research? Uh, my research, um, looking at the migratory behavior of the mountain whitefish, so when and where they spawn in the Upper Green River in Wyoming, 
And uh, I also am going to look at some other traits of reproduction, such as the fecundity, so how many eggs each fish has, and at what age they mature, um, and the age structure of the population. And I'll also be looking at the juvenile distribution of the mountain whitefish in that river. And all of those things I'll be comparing to another river where my river, the Upper Green River, the population has declined, or sorry, is doing well. But in the Madison River, there was a large study on mountain whitefish there, and the population isn't doing well. So looking at differences in some of those traits, um, hopefully working at figuring out some of the mechanisms that are, yeah, causing the declines in the Madison River and maybe other rivers. So comparing your study site, which is doing doing well to one that, that isn't doing well and, and just trying to get pinpoint some of those potential differences. Yep. Tell us a little bit more about this migration to to spawn that, that this, this species goes through. Okay. Uh, mountain whitefish aren't uh, as simple as maybe salmon that you'd think of where they run out of the ocean, they go up the streams and they spawn. Uh, not that it's as simple as that, but in general... <laughs> <laughs> mountain whitefish uh they go upstream in some rivers they go downstream in other rivers and some places they don't migrate much at all so that's a big thing we're working on trying to figure out is why are they migrating to the areas that they migrate to to spawn um and what is triggering those migrations is it temperature is it genetic cues like what's making them migrate at the time they do and yeah, just trying to figure out a pattern to their migration because right now you look at different rivers and they go upstream and downstream and uh, yeah, we don't have a reason for that. So it does sound like a really interesting species to work on because yeah, it sounds like there's lots of information gaps that yet your work and others' work can can help to fill. And that that leads me to to ask you why would you say the work you're doing is important. Um, I'd say the work is important because mountain whitefish are, although they're an underappreciated species, in my opinion, that's not everyone cares about them, but they're a native species to these areas and populations are starting to, to decline and we don't really know why. And, um, just trying to help get ahead of the curve a little bit on mountain whitefish, maybe rather than having to try to recover these populations after, many have declined if we can figure out some of the mechanisms that are causing the declines uh, maybe we can help these fish before it gets bad and yeah keep a native sport fish species in these rivers and um have you started collecting your data in the field yet um yep i had they are fall spawners so i track i tagged fish and tracked them through one fall spawning season excellent and I assume you're going to have another field season coming up in another year. And, and so you've got a little bit of time before you're at that point where you're, you're analyzing the data and writing it all up and getting ready to, to share your findings. But if you could, could look, look ahead a little bit, what, what would be the best or most interesting thing that you could find? The best thing I could find would be a fairly specific thing that is a difference between the Upper Green River mountain whitefish population and, sorry about the noise with me too. <laughs> <laughs> Just how things go these days. But a specific difference between the Upper Green River mountain whitefish population 
and the Madison River population that is leading to these declines in the Madison River, I think would be, yeah, the most valuable piece of information, but just really a better understanding of the ecology of mountain whitefish in, no one's looked in detail at a population in Wyoming ever. So I think just that baseline knowledge on the ecology is, I don't know, almost as important as well. That was interesting to me when we we talk about these information gaps on species that um, I think maybe not everybody realizes how little we we do know about certain species and say, well, you didn't didn't know that already? (laughs) And and how much more there is to discover, which makes our jobs um, really very fun that there is still so much more to learn and it gives gives us new new focus all the time um we we wrap up these podcast interviews with the with the last question about favorite animal or favorite plant and you can have one of each if you want so i'll I'll let you see what you do with that question it's big sagebrush today yep okay so why why might that be um Partially growing up in Wyoming, it's, you know, it is a lot of the landscape and I think just what it supports, whether it be sage grouse or the mule deer or the pronghorn antelope, it's just a landscape I love and just the wildlife that it supports as well. Um, Yeah, it's just, I don't know, I think it's a species that it's long lived and uh, people don't think about that as much because it's short, but long-lived tough species that really supports the ecosystem i like it i like that you like it for its uh the way it brings you back to a to a place and time but also for for its uh characteristics that's very cool do you have a favorite plant are we sticking to or sorry favorite animal are we sticking to plant we're sticking to plant i like it i love when when (laughs) fisheries biologists or wildlife biologists they're they're um passionate about their plants that's that's a good thing that's a really good thing. Coulter, thank you so much for, for taking the time to visit with me today and, and working through the, the technology um, issues here. And I wish you the best of luck with your research as it continues at Montana State University. Yeah, thank you. And thanks to you for listening to today's Voices of Conservation Science. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with a friend. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. We'd also love to hear from you, so please leave us a review, or you can also email us at todaysvoices at montana.edu.